0: We are completing the thought that emerged in our reading last week. I kind of had to stop halfway through a bit of a digression that is found in the book of Hebrews here. And um, there was a bit of a shift in the tone of Hebrews last week. And uh, we're not halfway through at this point and the writer is building up a very eloquent sermon at the moment. It's a sermon in writing from a very eloquent writer very eloquent speaker. For that reason, there are different, very uh, plausible uh, uh, hypotheses about who the author is. The points have been building up on each other really nicely. And uh, we're about to hear an amazing piece of theology where Jesus operates out as our great high priest. And uh, that's going to be awesome. And and Peter's going to start fleshing that out next week when he speaks. But last week it all digressed into something quite different and quite sharp. This seems to be because the writer is aware that his audience is quite intelligent in real life and has been around the church a significant time but are not really at a place of maturity that would reflect that in the body of the church. He's expecting growth. To the point a generation of capable teachers should have emerged by now. The writer is expecting a higher degree of spiritual discernment in their midst, knowing right and wrong and choosing right. In other words, being people of deep Christian conviction. He's expecting joyfully attentive ears to the theological ideas that they are bringing out in this letter. At this point, I reflected on that and I've realised something. There's actually significant joy, both in heaven and in the church, when a pagan becomes a convert, when someone who once lived according to the patterns of the world chooses to live according to the agenda of Christ and to come under His complete rule. Whenever that happens, be it one person, be it twenty it always ignites something in the local assembly. It's almost like a spiritual cat amongst the pigeons. Something, there is joy in heaven over one person coming to faith in Jesus. We know that. But that joy is contagious in the church too. Every time we have new believers being baptized, there's new joy, there's new life, there's something um, incredibly new and fresh in the life of the church. October 21, we've got a baptism service. If you want to be part of that new and freshness part, if you're considering that in your own life, the water, the tank will be full, and uh, we'd love to know who you are so we can get ready for that. There's a very closely ranked joy that emerges when we see those converts become willing, joyful students of Jesus. What the Bible calls disciples. So they're not just sticking their toe in going, oh, let's check this out and see how it goes. But no, they're going, you know what? Jesus is Lord and I will follow him and I will put my life and put my effort and put my being into learning his ways and following those things. And closely ranked with that joy is the journey where a disciple, a student also steps out to become a teacher. Every time a new ministry or a new house church or a new leader emerges in this room, that sort of joy rises up in me. Something is really exciting every time something like that happens. And I know that that would be the joy that our author is looking for as he writes this letter but our author is encountering far less than that to the point that he still has to consider them infants in faith when they should be a lot more adult like now this infancy can have, a, have something to do with their previous Judaism setting, some of those have some of the audience that is being written to here definitely came from a Jewish background and, and, and some of them are uh, going back to that like comfort food. <laughs> you know, there, there's something uniquely, even though it's controlling and legalistic, and there's something, it, it was a path of le- less resistance compared to their Christian faith. But there were other people, just like there is in here today as well, where we can slip into our defaults really easily where the Christian faith gets a little bit hard, so we'll look for the one place where life wasn't so hard and go back to that. But it comes at the expense of Christian maturity in doing so. These people are dependent. They're being spoon-fed, entry-level Jesus stuff. When they should have had all that nailed down and be feeding others. Some of us, that might just be a challenge for us today. Yeah, either I've eaten all I can eat, I need to give this to someone else, or I've got some catching up to do, or I should have been teaching ages ago, I've got so much gift in me that I'm just not allowed to be realised yet. Either way, if the Lord is nudging you, act on those things. Sometimes the scriptures such as 1 Peter 2, being an infant can be an endearing thing. But the instance of being an infant in Hebrews is not one of those times. In fact, the writer believes their drifting hearts are deeply complacent to the point that they just can't be bothered trying anymore. That sort of mindset in a church setting needs a shot across the bows. Something that will wake that congregation up. And that shot is what we're reading in our passage both, both last week and today. It starts with last week's call to grow up and continues today with a warning that should make everyone sit bold upright as we ponder it. With all that said, we're going to look at our passage, Hebrews chapter 6, it'll be verses 4 to 12 today. And I'll invite you to read that with me today. It'll be on screen for you to follow. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. To their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting Him to public disgrace. Land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end it will be burned. But even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are convinced of better things in your case. The things that have that have to do with salvation. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show the same diligence to the very end so that what you hope for may be fully realized. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. Some of those things will get visited later in the series and I'll come back to some of those sentences. But one of the elementary things I believe we all need to get nailed down is this understanding of the dynamic in play when we become followers of Jesus. And this passage shows us a number of ways that this comes about. It gives us some great descriptions of how our salvation works. In theological speak, we call this soteriology. Module 2 of our elementary series actually covers this in great detail. Marguerite wrote it, did a great job. The milky idea of this is that one day you repeated a prayer. Perhaps you felt a little bit different after the fact. A few things changed in your life and you kind of thought this is worth sticking around for and you've got a new eternal hope. You've got sort of, you know, you're not going to hell no more. You've got heaven stitched up. That is the very milky rendition of Understanding Salvation. One that I often hear repeated a lot. One that seems to be the entirety of some people's gospel. It speaks nothing about living for eternity now. It speaks nothing of yeah. It's very limited in understanding. It's a very milky grasp on being what it means to be saved. The meatier version in this passage shows five key things that take place when you become a Christian. Sometimes in a sequence, sometimes not. But all these things should be somewhat apparent early in faith. With the understanding that they also grow and develop over time. Experiences may vary because God is God and every person is different. The first description used here is the word enlightenment. There's a space for notes in the U version Bible app today too. I forgot to mention that earlier, and, I've, uh, and it says there to make notes some of the Bible verses I'm offering here as we go along. Enlightenment. The idea is that outside of Christ, we lived in a spiritual state of what the Bible calls darkness. But at one point or another, Christ broke through that darkness. And we were suddenly brought to a point where Jesus was all you could see. You could have been hostile to God all your life. But then one day it became an undeniable truth, like light hitting you, like a light bulb. That's enlightenment. A dark to light understanding of faith. And this is actually a common metaphor of Christian conversion in the New Testament. Some of the Bible verses I've suggested there to look at. I'll read them out to you. John 8, 12. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Paul uses this idea in Ephesians 5, 8. For you were once darkness. Not that you had it around you, but you were part of it. You were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. John would later describe our ongoing faith journey as a life of living in light. 1 John 5 to 7, chapter 1, verse 5 to 7. This is the message we've heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In Him, there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with Him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, His Son, purifies us from all sin. So this idea of light there is that there is both a vertical response to God out of that, that God does something in that, but it also affects us horizontally too, that we become a people of light. The gospel always involves being a team sport. So being enlightened is a pretty well-established idea of what goes on when we become believers. The second description used today is to taste the heavenly gift. In our holidays, Jen and I got down to Margaret River and while many of us here might think of amazing wine... Jenna and I lived in WA and we immediately thought of chocolate because we did a bit of driving around different regions. We'd never been, we lived in WA for five years and never went down to Margaret River in that time. But we always knew about Margaret River chocolate because everywhere you went, in other places, other little gourmet places, Margaret River chocolate was everywhere. And there is nothing more chocolatey than the chocolate factory down there. It's an awesome dairy region. And that means awesome cream and therefore awesome chocolate. And awesome tasting stations. As in massive, big, stainless steel bowls. I can't even... I I think just in the left corner there. Um, I won't even try that. I don't feel like I want to work on this. But in the far left is a bowl. What you don't see is that bowl is about that big. There's three of those. Full, white chocolate buds, milk chocolate buds and 70% cocoa, dark chocolate buds. I gravitated to that one. Spoon, dessert spoon. Sign, help yourself. Trouble, Fuck so, I'm not convinced. <laughs> <laughs> there are other places like that all around that region. It reminded me what Mount Gambier could actually do with a gourmet market here. There were places with different gourmet elements. Pestos, dips, sauces, oils, nougats, beers, wines, coffee. All there and all inviting us to come and taste their wares. Today when we think the word taste, we often think of morsels on a spoon or a toothpick. Enough to get us interested. Not enough to satisfy. We're told of a heavenly gift here. Paul describes that gift in more detail in Romans chapter 5, verse 15 to 17. It says this, The gift is not like the trespass, for if the, if the many died by the trespass of one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and bought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? The heavenly gift is a massive thing. It's not a token of thanks, but it's everything. It's a new... And it's a great way of describing our salvation. It's righteousness offered to us through, the, through grace. It's a whole new status, a whole new way of life. Something that's not even possible to merely sample from a toothpick. Therefore, the idea of taste here is not a surface level try before I buy sort of idea, but an idea of partaking fully in Christ. It's important to understand that tasting the heavenly gift here, considering the word impossible that we have to look at shortly, needs to be noted about the depth of conversion that has been described here. Adding gravity to this, earlier in chapter 2, verse 9, the author of Hebrews tells us that Jesus tasted death. And the cross is a whole lot bigger than a toothpick, right? Right? So in the the mind of our writer, salvation involves fully partaking, not just sampling, in the massive gift of salvation on offer to us through Christ. And our doctrine of salvation depends on the idea that Jesus experienced the full, complete physical death. If he didn't die, sin wasn't punished. And if that's tasting... and our choice to follow Jesus is tasting then there's a certain gravity about this decision we've made to taste the heavenly gift is to make a meal of it, not just a sample another description is to share in the Holy Spirit Paul uses the term receive the Holy Spirit often as a phrase to describe the conversion experience. An example is Galatians chapter 2, chapter 3, sorry, verses 2 to 5. He's actually questioning where they've gone off track with their understanding of salvation, but this is how he writes. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish after beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Have you experienced so much in vain if it really was in vain? So again I ask, does God give you His Spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law or by your believing what you heard? There's a phrase used here that the Spirit is given to believers and this is synonymous with the time they came to faith. This is consistent with the way Jesus said the Spirit would be working among believers, whether you believe in modern charismatic gifts or not. So we've got three amazing things taking place and after all that, it should be no surprise that these other things are happening as well. That we taste, there's that word again, we taste both the the goodness of the Word of God And we taste the powers of the coming age. We know that a bunch of these guys in this church knew the Old Testament somewhat well. But with the lens of Christ, these guys would have seen a whole new layer of goodness to it and value and worth and power. In our setting we might have had some exposure to scripture before we came to faith but initially it probably didn't make as much sense as it does now because the Holy Spirit comes into our life and puts light on that and that's the experience being described here the Holy Word of God is being revealed in a new and living way and it makes great sense and it births in us a desire to live it out it adds power to our faith, it's amazing And there is a power of the world to come on display in their midst, accompanying their salvation. The world to come is on the mind of this writer a few times in this letter. It's the second time it's being used so far, this phrase. The gospel calls us to live out our lives in such a way that anticipates the world to come. The gospel is not that we say a prayer and we avoid hell. It's actually about living out the values of the kingdom we're now citizens of even though we haven't seen it in full yet. It's a life that anticipates eternity. Otherwise, nothing changes. And here our writer speaks of the power of that. The power of the world to come the world that we're anticipating. This is a reference to miracles and charismatic gifts, things that empower us with something tangible as we proclaim and demonstrate the kingdom we're part of and will fully inherit in that world to come. So we have these this amazing idea of becoming a Christian coming out here. This is no more than Say a prayer, shake your hand, welcome to the kingdom, see you later. This is a meaty thing that we're part of here. Our salvation has more power and more gravity than we sometimes give, it atten- give attention to. A Christian is someone who has been enlightened, who has had more than a mouthful of the heavenly gift, has shared in the spirit, and has realised just how powerful both the Word and the Spirit are in their lives now that they know Christ. But we have this idea being brought out to a complacent congregation who can't be bothered in with it. It's clear in this passage that the author fears that they can actually get to a point where they would lose it all forever if they're not careful. We're going into interesting ground at this time when we think about that. Now, they're certainly not there yet. Our writer assures them of this in this passage. And if they were too far gone, there would be absolutely no sense writing this letter. It would all be a waste of time. At least in the mind of this author, though... uh, Backsliding to a place where you can't come back does appear to be possible. It's not a hypothetical thing here. Our writer is more eloquent than that. He's not going to go into hypothetics when he's actually trying to actually make some pretty solid points. There does appear to be a point where real Christian conversion can become something else altogether to the point that damage is done. Irrevocably so. And this has always appeared to be the case, even while the idea of being eternally secure is also written about. We have an interesting dialogue to have about this subject when we look at all the scriptures. Really interesting. Jesus says in John 10 that because he's the good shepherd, none of his sheep will be snatched from his or his father's hands. If we read Romans 5, chapter 5 to chapter 8, we see a great essay about just how secure Christ's people are. However, there will be cases of people who, for all intents and purposes, will become every bit the believer as we are, but in the long haul, their lives will reveal otherwise. The Sermon on the Mount indicates this. Jesus said there would be true and false disciples in chapter 7 of Matthew. The false ones will claim they did things in the name of Jesus. Significant things. Only to be told that Jesus the judge didn't know them. Jesus did speak once about a sin that actually had no forgiveness. Blasphemy of the Spirit. You had to be pretty far gone to get to a point where you'd be doing that. In context, when Jesus talked about that sin, the context is that a bunch of, 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 of people are looking at Jesus going, you're acting in the name of the devil. And Jesus is firing a shot across the bowels going, you know what, you're going to a place you don't want to go right now. In 1 John, chapter 5, we have a really curious Bible verse to look at. If you see any brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray and God will give them life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying you should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin and there is a sin that does not lead to death. Something in the thinking of the, of the first disciples had an idea that somewhere there was a breaking strange on what, on what faith was. Somewhere on the way, someone can sever ties with Jesus so much that so they can lose it all. In context here, we also have false disciples influencing the church who are denying key doctrinal, doctrinal points about Christ. And in John's letter it seems that they were once every bit the brother as everyone else. They came from among us. But they would be eventually shown for what they, that, that, that that's not who they were in, in reality. Paul's letters reveal believers who went off the rails and ended up in apostasy. A famous one who went off the rails is Simon the Sorcerer in Acts. He came to faith in Samaria. He got baptized. He received the Holy Spirit. But then it went pear shaped, right? He offered to pay for the ability to impart it to someone else, not understanding the work that he'd actually received. When he was rebuked and when he was challenged, his response in the scriptures is less than stellar about it. And church history tells us he was actually a bit of a thorn in the side of the church. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus tells us repeatedly of faithfulness, of diligence, of perseverance and watchfulness as we practice our Christian faith. That has to be for a reason. Parable of the virgins. Some were faithful, others didn't. And when the time came, some celebrated and others did not. Others who got complacent. Parable of those keeping watch. The Lord delays His coming and they missed out. Again, we have a complacent people being uh, warned there. As we come to Hebrews, entering faith but falling short has been on the author's mind more than once in this letter. He's already called for diligence and paying careful attention to their faith in order not to drift away because drifting is only the start of a slippery slope. In Hebrews 3, he notes that a previous generation of Jews got out of the box really well but ended up not entering because they caved into unbelief. Again, when we get to a point where we just don't believe it no more, we end up in a pretty dark place. In chapter 4, of Hebrews we are told of that generation, the ones in the wilderness who missed out on the rest to come. Using that analogy, the writer calls the church to make every effort to enter their rest. So in all this, we have an amazing gift of salvation, irrevocable and eternally secure. And... We also have intention without a call for believers to be diligent and watchful with the gift we've received and not to cave into unbelief, complacency or error. But when we practically interact with that, how do we do that? (laughs) I've seen some interesting ways that's gone down first thing I see when I read about this is that we have to get to a, we need to understand that to get to that sort of status you need to get to a pretty low place. One that I don't believe any single one of us has ever come anywhere near to. The very fact and I love what one commentator said about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. I think it was John Stott back in the day when I was reading it. said that if you have to ask Or if you have to be, if you are generally concerned, gee, have I done the unforgivable? Will I ever get back to Jesus? The fact that that very concern is on your heart indicates that that probably doesn't apply to you. If you got to the point where have I and do I really care, then suddenly we have a problem. If our heart is always looking towards Jesus, even if we think we're fallen, looking to get back, then I don't believe we have a problem to worry about that things are as bad as it might feel. There is still hope, there is still forgiveness, there is still salvation to cling to. Our author here tells us that it's something that subjects Jesus to public disgrace and crucifies him all over again. With the idea that there is... The idea of Jesus is once for all. And if you clung to him once in such a way, you are fine for all. But if you then go, oh, I'm just going to go and absolutely go into absolute ridiculous error and go to this place where I'm going to completely renounce who he is, crucifying him all over again, creating a disgrace of our Lord, and that once is one and done. That's the idea that comes to play here. In recent years, I watched a YouTube video. Two Islamic clerics speaking. And it is a bit of a compare the pair situation because one was born an Islamic cleric. The other one used to be a Pentecostal youth pastor. And you've got this really long video clip and it's titled, The Top Ten Reasons Why Jesus Is Not God. The comments alone indicated a really sad result. I converted to Islam because of this video, thank you. Another one, I'm a Christian and I agree with you one billion percent. There's another comment. Like, what are they doing with these people? might that qualify for bringing Jesus to public disgrace in that sort of way? It would need to be something really heavy like that. Something the average believer doesn't need to worry about. If you're online and you're watching today, it needs to be, it's a place where even you should not be worried about. If, you, if it's still in your heart to watch online, if you're going, I'm away from Jesus or I'm away from community or I'm, I'm still trying to find my way but I'm still trying to find God in the process, you can still come back. There is absolute hope for you. You are not to worry about the ramifications of this. Instead, turn back to Jesus. Sort out that drifting and get back to Him. In short, as believers, what is being written about here is not something to live in fear of, but it's also not something to ignore. So why was this written? Because there was a complacency in this congregation that needed a shot across the bow. Whenever we read about these warnings that show up, they are for a reason, warnings. When the audience is in a complacent place or in an unbelieving place, these warnings come about. But when we read about the eternal security idea, usually they're people that need reassurance. If you need reassurance, your eternal security verses will hold you in good stead. If you don't care, these are the ones to watch out for and go, Jesus, do I need to respond to this? He's saying here that he doesn't believe they're near it, but he does want the church in this audience to wake up, to come out of the slumber, to come away from the sheer dullness of their current expression. I've heard it discussed that faith is a bit like this. We're walking a tightrope, a faith faith tightrope. This is the narrow way. This is my life. And any time I do something wrong, I plummet. Or I backslide and if I turn back to Jesus, well, I've got to work my way back up to the top of wherever that pinnacle is and start the tightrope all over again. Lots of people think of, I'm like an irrevocable fall. Lots of people think of walking out faith as this tightrope. Both erroneous views. One of my favourite web, um, satire websites likes to hit out at different ideas, put this up. Local Armenian loses salvation in high stakes poker game. Again, the idea that there is this entity called salvation that you can throw it away at any given moment. You know what, these sorts of thoughts end up emphasising our works and they completely diminish the grace of God. They depower the actual heavenly gift that we've tasted. That sort of living here That's not being described in Hebrews. Passages like nothing will snatch you out of the Father's hand. And other verses of assurance about eternal security are totally appropriate to apply to our lives. When we walk in a tightrope thinking, gee, one way or the other, oh, gee, I've just, I've made a a really, I've made a sinful choice and here I am. haven't crucified Jesus afresh nothing's going to snatch you from the father's hand that's the assurance you need to walk in at that point I haven't thrown it away like a poker game I'm still in Christ even though I'm a fallible fallen human God will always be faithful but if we stop caring or stop growing or gotten complacent or lazy or bitter or cynical or any of those things that lead us to not even bother in our faith walk. A warning about the perils of falling away is also an appropriate way of approaching the scriptures. So let's wind up with all that. <laughs> consider the whole digression afresh together. I want to ask a few basic questions to you today. First question, similar to what was asked last week, are we pursuing maturity the way the author seems to describe it? Developing in discernment, being able to ponder deeper truths and being ready and capable of teaching others a journey you're pursuing at the moment. I said last week that half a dozen coffee appointments with someone who has a teaching gift or someone who can help you work through the scriptures could be a really invaluable thing for you. If you've gone, I would really need to make that appointment, have you yet? House church leaders, are you on hand for something like that? Are influential Christians in the room? Are you willing to be on board for that? If you need to catch up, we want to help you. Are we truly aware of the salvation we've received? Do we have a grasp on all that this salvation offers to us? Would you describe your faith expression as something with all those elements going on in you? enlightenment, partaking in the heavenly gift, interacting with the Holy Spirit, knowing the power of God's Word, knowing God's presence and His power. Are those things operating in your life? Are you aware that those things even exist there? And is there a complacency in us that you might be realising shouldn't be there but it is? Most of us today simply need to walk in the assurance of the faithfulness of God despite our ongoing imperfections. We're redeemed, fallen humans. We will sin this week. We will be tempted. We will cave. But God will always be faithful. but there may be one or two of us today that the Lord has fired a shot across our bow this morning. Do you need to respond to that in this time today? A wake out of our slumber, maybe. A wake out of our complacency. We're going to pause, we're going to pray and to allow the Lord to speak in this time. And then we have a song of celebration that we'll be singing shortly.